1: Welcome to episode 40 of District of Conservation. To celebrate this milestone hitting 40 episodes, I figured it would be appropriate to have a guest join us. And that guest today is Lexi Quinn. Lexi is a Jill of all trades. She just spent nearly 10 years as a firefighter and most recently completed her service with the U.S. Forest Service as a wildland firefighter which is so cool to hear about because you don't hear many women go into that very intensive field she's just 26 years old she left the forestry service and firefighting altogether to pursue her passion and start her own business and she's also a professional outdoor media association member much like i am and She's just really got a lot going for her, and I love elevating fellow outdoor women who love to fish, hunt, shoot guns, and I figured her perspective would be so valuable to have because so much has been talked about as it relates to forestry management, forestry reforms in NEPA, and timber, and all that, so with the timeliness of this issue, I wanted to bring on someone firsthand who has lived that lifestyle and has combated fire here is my conversation with Lexi Quinn. Enjoy. Thank you so much for joining District of Conservation, Lexi.
0: How's it going?
1: Going well. How are things in Colorado?
0: Pretty good. We just went on a hike today, so I'm kind of sweaty and had to rush to have some lunch really quick.
1: (laughs) Is Um, it hot much in Colorado right now, or is it cooler?
0: It's been extremely hot. It's been like 80 to 95 degrees every day, and it's more than I expected. (laughs)
1: probably not as bad as here on the east coast it's been sweltering like crazy
0: (laughs) how hot are you guys well you have all the humidity too i know
1: i know but Colorado, you guys have a little bit of a break when it comes to weather so it's nice last night oh my goodness i've heard that people are still having snow too
0: yeah some of them are but we had pretty decent sized hail last night
1: insane Um,
0: the rain so i left my plants out to dry out just a little bit and back. So now they're even more ruined
1: oh goodness well hopefully they'll 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 mend yeah I wanted to first start with asking you about how you got into the great outdoors because I know you do some fishing and hunting and shooting sports before we talk about your career in the forestry but I wanted to know and I think listeners want to know how exactly did you get your start in the outdoors
0: um I was actually really young um, I think I was about three years old when I started riding horses. My grandparents have like a pretty decent sized farm in Illinois, and my parents raised pigs and cows and whatnot. Um, they had horses, so I kind of started there. Um, and then growing up in Wisconsin, it, it's a very outdoor culture, a very like farm area as well. Very a lot of agriculture in that area. Um, so I actually started deer hunting with my dad and my brother when I was like six years old, um, Mm -hmm. like rifle hunting on his friend's land. So we, we never had like land of our own or a cabin or anything, but we hunted on my dad's friend's land Mm. kind of up until even last year. Um, but when I was 12, I joined what's called like a boys and girls brigade. They have, it's where kids go to mingle with other kids I guess and they teach you, they take you to like a summer camp they teach you arts and crafts Um, two of the things that they also had there was like a 22 rifle range down in the basement where they taught kids how to shoot properly and gun safety Um, and then they also had like an archery league which I joined and started doing when I was 12 which escalated to um, taking up archery as a sport so I, I shot for like ASA um, and then 3D tournaments throughout the state and ended up traveling across the country um, doing like pro shooting through HHA and Matthews. And then when I was 16, I was living in Missouri, I think, where I was a bow tech for a couple of years at a, an archery shop. And that's where I learned everything there was to know about bow hunting. And then I kind of just started from there Um, none of my family bow hunts or anything but from there I kind of just found some land to hunt and then kind of took up my passion for bow hunting when I was 16.
1: That's super cool you don't really hear that especially bow hunting from such an early age general hunting like firearms yeah but bow hunting from a young age that's really cool.
0: Yeah I was never really good at sports so when I found out that I actually had a really good knack for archery, I kind of stuck with it and I was excited about it because it was something I was actually good at for once. It was a huge confidence boost and I kind of just stuck with it. And then from there, I just met a lot of people, ended up hunting as much public land as I could. Um, and then when I was living in Wisconsin a couple of years ago, probably like five years, um, I was literally traveling all over so Tennessee, Florida, Ohio, Wisconsin. Missouri, just all over just bow hunting everywhere I could. So it taught me a lot.
1: That's good. And what's your favorite thing to bow hunt for right now?
0: Right now, probably whitetail, just because that's all I've shot with my bow other than turkeys. Well, and a bear too, but I'm going to try. This year is actually the first year I'm actually going to be bow hunting for elk, so we're going to see how that goes. I'm actually doing a really big piece, which I'll talk about more later. Um, On my uncle, we're going to go the first two weeks of September here in Colorado um, archery hunting, and then uh, my boyfriend Isaiah is going to be coming as well. So He's new to bow hunting. I was able to teach him, and he's actually really good at it and loves it. Um, My uncle, who he's disabled, but he's got one arm and he bow hunts. Wow. It back with his teeth. So he's not using like a crossbow or anything. So I'm doing wow. a new story on him and we're going to try to harvest an elk. I don't even care if I get one this year. Cause I got one last year. Um, my biggest concern is getting my uncle and my boyfriend an elk.
1: That sounds like a really awesome story. I look forward to you telling it more, telling more about it. Yeah, for sure. Next. I want to discuss uh, something you told me when we first met at SHOT Show in 2018 about your time in the forestry service, which you just retired from, from a, a decade of service. Can you explain how you got roped into that? Because that seems kind of unusual, especially for women to get roped into. So how did you get roped into being a firefighter in the forestry service?
0: It's kind of like a longer process as to how I got into fire. So I kind of, I'll start with that. Yeah. Um As far as, like, retirement goes, it's kind of me and my boyfriend decided to leave fire. So, we didn't, like, officially – we weren't officially able to retire, but we kind of – we consider it, like, we left because we want to pursue other things. So, that's a new thing this year. We both made the decision to leave. He had 12 years with the Forest Service specifically. I had 10 years in fire as a total. Wow. Um, But we both decided that we wanted to pursue other things. We want to save our bodies. And – um, we left our jobs and moved to Colorado a month ago. So But as far as how I got into fire, it was when I was sixteen. So I was living in Missouri at the time with my mom. Um, and I can't remember exactly how, but a friend of mine was a volunteer on a local fire department, and he's like, Oh, you should join with me and like it would be cool. And I was like, I can't be a firefighter, I'm a girl, like or I don't know. I wasn't very convinced to do it right away. But I ended up doing it, and then obviously I was 16, so I was an explorer. I couldn't really do a whole lot. Um, but that year I turned 17, and then I was kind of at first only able to just watch and learn. Um, but when I was 17, going on to 18, I was actually able to do more. So I still attended all the trainings. Um, when I was very small at this point, I think when I was 16, I only weighed like 100 maybe 110 pounds um so I was pretty small so I kind of drowned in the uniform which was pretty hilarious I have pictures that I could send you sure um but when I was a kid I was always like really nosy with fires and car accidents and stuff I always wanted to like see what happened or kind of like get closer kind of just being like a looky-loo like everyone else um So when I, I think it was when I turned 18, I got, I fell in love with it. Like, I loved the adrenaline. I loved the fact that I was helping people. I had a crazy obsession with fire, even when I was a kid playing with candles. So when I was 18, I decided, you know, I might as well pursue this as a career and go to school for it. So I joined a tech college. um, And... I graduated from Fox Valley Tech in Appleton, Wisconsin in 2015 with my degree as a fire specialist, and then by then, I had five years of experience in the field already, because I was working um, all through college. I was working on a fire department, um, started volunteering for the first two years, and then after that, I was pretty full-time. Um, so then, I did that for a couple of years. I was an EMT as well, but... Um, it kind of just got old, I guess. Like, just seeing all the... Because most of our job wasn't even fire. Honestly, it was, like, more medical calls. We had to respond to some pretty um, horrific scenes of at, at times. And it just starts wearing on you after a while. Um, so I kind of... And I've always wanted to be out in the mountains. So that's... It was, like, four or five years ago when I decided... I've passed the medical calls in city life, and I wanted to move to the mountains and work outside. So I applied with the Forest Service through USA Jobs. Ended up getting a job, and I packed all my stuff, sold everything I had, and moved to Utah. Like
1: four years ago. Were you mostly in Utah? Where where did they have you work?
0: So, how it's set up is I was stationed in Duchesne, Utah, which is just outside of Vernal um, and Heber, kind of near Park City, maybe like an hour away, I think. Um, So, we had like our local base. Um, There was two different engines there. There was a Type 4, which is a bigger engine that seats five people, and then we had a Type 6 engine, which seats five people as well, but it's a lot smaller. It's kind of like the size of a pickup truck, basically. Um... And then we kind of were just stationed there, but then anytime we would get a fire assignment, we would travel all over the West. So I ended up going from growing up in Wisconsin, not seeing or having been to any of the Western states, to in one summer going to almost every single Western state there is. So we were in Idaho, Wyoming, um, Nevada, all over Utah. I think we ended up in Colorado a couple times um Idaho we were there a lot and i started off in an engine and then my second year also in utah i was on a hand crew it was like a type 2 hand crew which if you want me to i can explain the different types of crews as well
1: sure yeah
0: so how that is set up there's several different types of crews obviously for different um suppression tactics and stuff like that. So you've got your heli crews, which they operate on helicopters. So they're doing like water drops, um, flying people into areas where we, it's not as efficient for us to hike into there. They do like cargo drops. So they're bringing in water and Gatorade and supplies like hose and stuff like that. Um, and then you have a repel crew, which is similar to Hell but it's more advanced So you're basically dropping people in by rope. So they're rappelling probably 200 feet or less into a fire where it's not as efficient to hike into, um, or they can just get there faster. And then they've got like 110 pounds or more of weight on their back of their gear. Sometimes they're out there for a week, sometimes longer. Um, and then you've got smoke jumpers who are in the airplanes and they jump into the fires, um, <clears throat> and then there's the hotshot crews, which they basically hike everywhere they go. Um, and we're fighting fire with hand tools, which are very similar to garden tools, huh. uh, which is kind of interesting. But the hotshot crews, they kind of have, like, they're expected to hike. You know, they're the faster ones. They do a lot of. Um, so if, like, one area's on fire, we'll have to burn it out. So we want to tie the fires together to kind of cut it off. So we fight fire with fire, essentially. And then we also dig line. So that's another thing that the hotshots do. And then you've got, like, your type 1 and type 2 hand crews, which very similar to high shot crews, just um, less qualified. So they can't do as much. Um, and some of them spike out. So... Like most of the time when we're on a fire assignment, we're there for like 2 weeks at a time. Um working 16-hour days and we're in essentially in a fire camp. So they'll set up like different trailers so we'll get fed there. We'll get all of our supplies like Gatorade water, batteries, whatever we need and everybody's in the same area. Other crews kind of what it's what's called spiking out. They'll stay closer to the fire and just they'll end up eating MREs or whatever else they have. And they'll be there for several days, so they don't ever go into the fire camp. Because sometimes you're an hour away from the fire, and it's just too time-consuming. Um, and then you've got your engines, which you've got your type 3s, type 4s, type 6s are the most common. Um, and they, you know, have water, and they shuttle water in and out and stuff like that. So those are the all the common crews and how they're divvied up. So everybody's got different job descriptions, and what they can and can't do, basically.
1: It's a good explanation, because I think most of us have no idea how all that is divided. <laughs> so I think you oh, gave a very good... Clar- yeah, because there's a...
0: Know- Go ahead.
1: No, I no. Know.
0: I didn't even know that wildland existed until, like, five years ago. I didn't even <laughs> know anything, to be honest. Growing up in the East Coast, you don't hear about it, really. Like, you hear about the fires and, you know, but you don't really... You're not, you're so, like, shied away from it, I guess. And we, d- we just we're don't Away move from, from it. it yeah. The Midwest or the East Coast, because they don't, it's not like we're on the news all the time or anything like your structure firefighters are. We're mm-hmm. never really in the public eye. We're out in the middle of the forest. Um, and they don't really allow a lot of media people in there anyways. Like, you hear about it in California, but that's about it. So, I mean, there's a lot of things... That people don't know about wildland, like how we fight fire, how we operate, and stuff like that. And you're going to tie into how we do forest management. And how yeah, later.
1: Yeah, I want to hear your thoughts on that for sure. But did you say that uh, you were helping to combat the campfire in California, or were you in SoCal? Were you where were you stationed when you were helping to combat so, that last
0: year? Last year. I was on a hotshot crew in Northern California, so I was stationed in Canby, California, which is close to Alturas. I don't know if a lot of people know where that is. It's very north. I was only like an hour and a half from the Oregon border, so I was very north. Um, But we ended up all over. Like Our crew left the state once last year, which is very irregular. Normally, Mm -hmm. we're in many different states all summer, but last year, we left to go to a fire in Colorado, which was actually by my house, but our buggy broke down in Nevada and we never made it. We made it as far as Grand Junction and had to turn around and go back. But for the most part, we were in California all year last year. So a lot of the bigger fires that I was on was the, um, Delta fire, the Hertz, the Hertz fire, which tied into the Car fire. Um, all of that was like on the Shasta Trinity, um, Ended in Redding, so that's where a lot of the, that destruction was because all the fires kind of ended up tying into each other.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, to be honest, I don't even know what's left of the Shasta Trinity for that isn't burned. But yeah, I was on a lot of those major fires last year.
1: Uh, what they called the campfire, the region there is that where you were at, Paradise? Yeah, I oh. we
0: were there for a couple days before we got sent somewhere else.
1: I see. Yeah. Cause that was, I mean, I'm from California and I don't remember any fire being so catastrophic. I think it had what? 85 fatalities. It was nuts. I bet that was a lot of intense work for you guys to, to handle. And those who are directly there.
0: Yeah. There was a lot of resources. Um, like we even had people from Canada come in and help us. I think we had a couple Australian crews as well, come in and help us last year. Um, so that was something I had never ex- had the chance to experience yet. Um, and even this year, I know a lot of people are in Alaska right now. Alaska is getting hammered with fires right now.
1: I see. Huh.
0: But yeah, the fire behavior in California is definitely getting worse, which I can go into details on that too.
1: Yeah, it always seems like the state is on fire. And yes. I don't, to, to say that jokingly, I grew up there and I spent 21 years there. And most of the time it was usually some lunatic or idiot like starting fires on purpose because or some people were very reckless and they didn't know. Like something accidentally started, but a lot of them, I feel like were deliberate, but I could be mistaken there. Well, I
0: a lot of those fires last year that were caused were human caused.
1: They were human caused. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes. Um, it's kind of interesting. Like the, even the paradise fire, I think, I think they decided that the investigators found out that it was the electric company. I can't remember the name of it off the top of my head. But it was a major one in that area. Pacific um, Gas and Electric? Yeah, them. Yep. Mm-hmm. They were actually ended up being at fault for that fire, um, which coincidentally they went bankrupt last year as well. Yeah, so that's what I'd
1: heard. Interesting. I'm
0: assuming it had something to do with that because that fire cost quite a bit of money.
1: I think it was $16.5 uh, billion, which is a oh. lot of money.
0: A lot of structures lost, lives lost.
1: Yeah, irreparable damage. Mm-hmm. Yep. That's interesting. And maybe before you talk about your experience being a woman uh, working in, in the forestry service and also as a, fi- a fireman, uh, talk a little bit about what you think, was, was it difficult to clear brush and do your job effectively? Do you think, were there any obstacles to, to performing well, you think? Because in California, a lot of the policies in place, from what I remember, prevented firefighters like yourself from clearing brush. They said, we can't touch it because these forests are delicate, uh, did you encounter those types of obstacles, especially in wake of the announcement? They want to kind of reform certain forestry management practices.
0: Um, I'll kind of organize it in a way that makes sense to people who may may not understand as much right. as to how we do things. So I'll mm-hmm. kind of start with the basics and then work my way into into that. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically, as wildland firefighters are, we we're not. I think people have this idea in their head where we're out there with like hoses trying to put the fire out like a structure firefighter, but that's actually not the case at all. We're out there with hand tools, like I said, so we dig line to cut the fire off is our intention. Um, so we're, we're either going to burn some land to create what's called the black. We're going to create a big black area so when the fire reaches it, it'll stop because there's nothing left for it to burn. So that's a pretty common tactic that we go by. Or we dig hand line with these tools that we have um, to bare mineral soil. Sometimes it's like two dozer lines wide. Sometimes it's two feet wide. It kind of depends on the fire and the fuel type. Um, So our intention with that is to cut the fire off. So one of the biggest obstacles I think is the fire jumping the line that we spend hours putting in, which happens all the time, and then we have to start over. Um, so on any type of hand crew or hotshot crew or anything like that, you typically have like anywhere from twenty to twenty-two people. Um, so you've got your chainsaws in the front, so they're cutting any of the bigger brush like bushes and trees, and then behind them you've got your swamper, so they're getting they're getting the brush and stuff out of the way. And then you've got your, what's called the dig, behind them. So they're the ones digging to bare mineral soil. And you run into, depending on the fuel type, you're going to run into stumps. You're going to run into stobs from, like, the Manzanita plants are a huge pain in the butt. Um, and it's kind of hard to get through there, especially when you're trying to get it to bare mineral soil. Because you've got, you know, some layers of duff, which will still burn. So duff is like any type of soil with a lot of particles in it. So it's not fully um, decayed yet. Like you've got your chunks of bark and stuff like that. So we have to dig all that away as well. Um, not only that, but like you said, as far as the environment goes, like you've got a lot of ecosystems that are really sensitive. Um, so we can't be cutting certain trees. Like you're not going to cut a sequoia tree down. Obviously we try to right. avoid the aspens. Um. And stuff like that. So, there's rules as far as what we can cut and what we can't. It kind of depends on the, the forest ranger and, like, what their rules are. Um, another obstacle would probably be, like, some forest rangers don't want the scarring, is what they call it, from, like, a bulldozer driving through there. To create a fire break, it's going to create quite, quite a scar because you're removing anything in its path, essentially. Um... You've got, and plus, not only that, but, like, you've got a lot of these trees that um, need, like, the pine cones and stuff. They need to remain where they are in order to um, re-germinate. So, we dig line, and then as far as that, too, we have, like, you've got your poison oak. So, that was a huge struggle for me last year. I have never touched poison oak like that in my life. Um, I'm immune to poison ivy, so I never really thought poison oak was going to be a problem. But last year, I had poison oak all season, and it really put a damper on my ability to perform my job as well as I could because I was, like, swollen from head to toe. Oh, boy. To all summer. Um, so that's a huge obstacle for a lot of people because you have to get, like, a steroid shot and all this other stuff. So you're not only going through, you're cutting through poison oak, stinging nettle, white thorn, which is very similar to stinging nettle. You're trying to cut through all the thorns um, and stuff like that, and it's very, it's tough. Because to swamp all that and get it out of the way, you're just getting, your arms, your face, you're just getting cut up really bad. And then you're sweating, so that makes it worse. But what we like to say is you embrace the suck. <laughs> So that's our motto It is so very that's a lot of, some of the obstacles we have to deal with
1: yeah, I can imagine you guys are putting yourself front and center in dangerous way in in da- in a dangerous path I should say and uh, it's not fun <laughs> to help combat a fire and you also have to deal with all that stuff is poison poison oak is worse than poison ivy right That's oh, what right I understand right. I yeah <laughs> <It's good.
0: laughs> In California, especially, like, you've got your forests that are worse than others. Like, um, the one forest that everyone hates, any wildland firefighter will probably say the same thing, is the Klamath. It's in Oregon, and it's probably one of the worst forests out there because it's steep, it's rocky, it's miserable, it's hot. The poison oak there is basically dripping, just like the Los Padres National Forest has poison oak that's dripping, Um, and that poison oak is a lot stronger than other forests and it's miserable.
1: That sounds unbearable.
0: Yeah, but I have all the remedies to poison oak now.
1: That's good. I could
0: open my own practice if I wanted to.
1: (laughs) You built up the immunity and you know how people can combat it since you had to deal with it firsthand. That's so crazy. But, but you take away, I bet a lot of lessons from that.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah. There's a lot of do's and don'ts that I learned. (laughs) don't touch it don't because like I mean we're sleeping in we don't sleep in real I don't know some people do but I don't ever sleep in a tent really where you lay out a tarp on the ground with like a foam pad that you can either blow up or it's just already blown up for you and then you put your sleeping bag down and that's what you sleep on for 14 days sometimes 16 days or even 21 days if you get extended Cause we're working, you know, 16 hours, 16 hour days, anywhere from 14 to 21 days at a time before we get Wow,
1: That's intense. And we're,
0: yeah. We're eating MREs. We're eating, you know, lunches that aren't really the greatest as far as nutrition goes. We're busting our butts all day long. So it's pretty exhausting. We don't get the greatest sleep ever, but that's probably another obstacle is lack of sleep, the fact that we're gone all the time. So if you have a family or any type of a relationship, you literally have to watch your kids not grow up because you won't be around. You never get to see your significant other, really. Um, time, you never have time or freedom for yourself. At least not until you get laid off, which sometimes you're working from. Because fire season, usually they bring everybody on in April, get everybody trained up and ready to go. And then fire season typically starts in May. May or June, depending on where you live, um, and you're working until, you know, September, October, sometimes even December.
1: It's a long season.
0: Yeah. California is even longer. Yeah. Because it's dry. So in California, I don't think, I don't, we got laid off last year in like November, December.
1: Yeah, California, because it's idyllic weather. It's always hot.
0: <laughs> mm-hmm. And it's really dry. Yeah, the kind of fuel types are <clears throat> like the plants that are there dry out really fast. Mm-hmm.
1: What would you say has been what was your most uh, memorable experience? Did you have any I mean, despite the grueling work? Was there anything that you took away with it that you really enjoyed? I mean, apart from survival skills and learning defensive mechanisms? Was there anything else experience? I mean, traveling, and did you get to see much apart from working when you had any downtime or things of that sort? Was the travel kind of an added bonus? So what did you yeah, like about that?
0: I mean, aside from being <laughs> being stuck in a buggy with a bunch of smelly dudes, yeah, it was, <laughs> the travel was great. <laughs> but, and I mean, like I said, we got to travel all over the place. So here I am, like a Wisconsin girl, never seeing the mountains before, going from that to now seeing, like – we, I mean, we hike into some of the craziest areas that a lot of people haven't been, it, been to because they're either in the wilderness or they're just places that people don't go because it's so steep and there's you no know, trails there and stuff like that. So it would be, I mean, we mostly see it when it's on fire, as unfortunate as that is, but we get to see some of the beauti- most beautiful scenery I've ever seen in my life. Um, and to me, no matter how many years... I do this job or could have done this job. Like I don't think I ever would have gotten sick of seeing all those views. I don't think.
1: Could you talk? Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. Could you talk about what it was to be a woman working as a firefighter and also in the forest service? Uh, talk a little bit about that. What was, was it difficult to, to do? Cause I mean, when you're surrounded in a predominantly or when you're situated in a predominantly male environment, a lot of people assume it's, completely negative and granted it probably would have some downsides to it but what was your experience as a woman were there other female firefighters you encountered or were you one of the few that actually did that what was your kind of overall experience yeah
0: when I started I was one of the few which I kind of got used to I mean I grew up with brother like a brother um and I kind of always had guy friends more than girlfriends anyways so I, it wasn't really difficult for me to get along with the guys um however like when I first started like when I was in college for example one of my professors was a lot older kind of really old school um he actually tried to fail me a couple times um why would I he ended, do that because he didn't belong he didn't believe that women belonged in the fire service which was a lot of and still is a lot of your old school guy um, mentality like a lot of the city fire departments um you've got a lot of older guys there because you figure they're there for 20 plus years before they can retire so you've got a lot of older cultured guys there who still don't think that women belong and then some don't because they either don't have the mindset mentality personality for it or they're just super tiny and don't take their fitness seriously and they just can't physically do it. However, there are like I kind of uh, have always believed in that saying that you can do whatever you set your mind to. So, as a female, it is a lot more difficult because we really have to hammer down and focus on our fitness and our like. It's kind of inevitable. Like if you look at the anatomy of a man and a woman, the men are always, always going to be stronger. That's indeed kind of so. Trying to like trying to compare the two and make them equal is never going to happen because it's not realistic. However, women, I think it's our responsibility to make sure that we're staying fit, we're working out, and we're staying on top of our health, mental, um, as well as our overall health and well-being um, because we have to be physically able to do the job. Um I would have to say that wildland is a lot more difficult than firefighting just because of the longer days, like you're working a lot harder, um, and I just, but it's, it's definitely doable, but when I started, I was, you know, I was one of the four females out of eight to ever make it all the way through the academy at my college. Wow. If that shows you how many women even attempted to go through it, which wasn't many 10 years ago or even nine years ago. Um, I think I had a coworker at the archery shop that said that women don't belong in fire. Cause I told him what I was going to school for after he had asked. Um, but I think 10 years ago was a lot harder and less accepted than it is now. However, women still do struggle, especially in the forest service, which is actually a huge issue right now with uh, the harassment, not just sexual harassment, but just harassment in general. Um, There's been lawsuits after lawsuits. There's been, you know, episodes on Dateline and PBS and stuff like that all about harassment as of, like, the last two years. Um, When I worked in Utah, I didn't see as much of an issue with, like, the harassment. I didn't really deal with it as much there. Um, Not as much as I did in California. California is very anti-women, I think
1: really they claim to be such a progressive they claim they claim to be such a progressive state that's so counterintuitive
0: <laughs> i think a lot of the and i don't know if it's because it's a bigger state or what but there's more cuz 30% of i think it's 30% 30% of the entire like fire fighters within the forest service are women so it's a very low percentage it actually might be lower than 30 percent um and i wouldn't say that they're all anti-women because they're not there's a lot of really good areas that do support the fact that women are on crews and stuff um i did see more women on crews when i worked in california than i did in utah stuff like i saw maybe a couple but california there's a ton um but it kind of all depends on what area you're in what type of crew you're on and the people that you're working with and that goes with that's any
1: state really
0: it's whatever culture you instill into your crew whether they're going to be tolerant or not
1: that makes sense I guess it is situational um just from what you were discussing I I think I could surmise and anyone listening could surmise that yeah it just depends on the state the person in charge and just the culture like you said that they set up Mm
0: -hmm. my mindset with it honestly is if you're going to be a female knowing you're going into a male dominated industry which is pretty much the only place I've ever worked my entire life was in a heavily male dominated industry between Mm -hmm. firefighting and anything else I've done you kind of have to already you have to go into the job expecting to get like negative comments negative feedback negativity like if you go in there expecting that, you're not going to be surprised when it happens because it's going to.
1: Indeed. Yeah. And you just
0: have to take it with a grain of salt and like have a mm-hmm. type A personality. You gotta let it roll off your back and not let it bother you. If anything, use it as strength. to just prove I'm wrong, but not only prove I'm wrong, but just prove to yourself that you belong there, you know. And I wouldn't it kinda goes into that thing, like, don't be a people pleaser, because at the end of the day, the only person that you need to be accountable for as yourself, but, um, I think as long as you stay, and, like, even me, and this is advice I would give to other females, because I've had many, many, many women ask me over Instagram, and any other social media platform, like, oh, I want to get into firefighting, like, how do I, how do I do it, and I'll give them the best advice I can, but I also give them a fair warning, like, this is what's going to happen, and this is how you're going to have to overcome that, um you just got to speak up stand up for yourself and make sure that you're staying on top of your fitness because this is a very physical job and you have to be able to do it um so lifting weights you can't be afraid to lift weights and gain muscle because you're going to need it um don't be afraid of cardio because you're going to need that too don't be afraid to eat a lot because you're going to need that um and my biggest thing is you just definitely got to stand up for yourself like if there's Jokes being passed around or comments being passed around that you don't like. You're not going to know that it makes you uncomfortable unless you open your mouth and say something. And do so, you know, the first couple times, do so in, like, a very non-confrontational way. Like, don't go straight to your supervisor before even approaching your teammates about it. You know what I mean? That would be my biggest thing. But a lot of the women are afraid to speak up because what's going on at the Board Service right now is the women that do speak up, they get what's called blacklisted huh. um, they get called like the whistleblowers or whatever and they get blacklisted and it happens, it's definitely going on where women you know, it's because the fire industry just like the hunting industry is very small um, so if you if your name goes on the blacklist like you're going to have a hard time getting a job anywhere
1: outside of the industry too
0: uh No, mostly just within the, within industry. the industry. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Because, you know, they're like, oh, don't hire her. She's she's a troublemaker or whatever.
1: Yeah, that can exist in okay. any industry. But it, it's, I think.
0: It's, it's just military, police.
1: All of military. it, yeah. Yeah. But I like that you have, you had an optimistic view of it. And you, you said that you had to stand up for yourself. I think that's what women have to do. In those tough situations so that's good that you did
0: yeah and then i mean just doing your research before you go to a specific crew i think is a huge thing like um for example and i'm not throwing anyone under the bus but there was a job offer that i got in arizona there was another job offer i got two actually in oregon um and i know the history of those specific crews they have a very, they're very known for um, not really accepting women on their crews. Like there's, they don't have, they haven't had a woman on their crew in several years and there's a reason for that. Um, and I think the Forest Service could also do a better job of making sure that if you're going to put one woman on hotshot crew with 19 guys, like put another one on there. <laughs> give them, give that girl another girl to like, you know, compare, you know, not compare with, but work out with. You know what I mean?
1: Like partner with.
0: Yeah. Like somebody that you can have as like a, a backup or something like where you're, cause you're going to be pretty close in physical ability as far as running and lifting and stuff goes. So kind of like <clears throat> being there to support each other and lift each other up versus being the only girl with 19 guys, I don't think is very good. It's not always bad. Like, I've been on crews with nothing but guys, and we got along great, but then there's other crews where they're not as accepting, and they're jerks to you, and they try to run you off, or they try to wash you out, so to speak, and they actually turn it into a game. Huh. They try to wash people out, and it happens to guys, too. It's not just the women. That
1: yeah. They haze others. They haze their, their fellow guys. That's so weird.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's like a good old boy culture, mm-hmm. and... You know, you've got your supervisors that have that old school mindset and they're not open to change and new things. So any any of the new firefighters that come in are being taught that same mentality. Some of the crews, you know, are open to the change and they've actually done a really great job. There's a lot of crews out there that have women on it and they do very well and they're very accepted, but there's other crews that aren't. It's kind of like hit or miss. Depends on the crew at the end of the day.
1: With your retirement, though, from firefighting, you have kind of segued from being on the forefront of combating fires to going into kind of another (laughs) intensive position working in outdoor media in the outdoor industry. Is that what you've kind of uh, modeled yourself into to work in outdoor media now? Explain the transition you've made and, and, and how that's been and what you're setting your sights on career-wise? So
0: I kind of left fire just because, you know, I've been in it for 10 years. My body's starting to feel it. Like my back, I've got, my back is pretty messed up. My flexibility is not great. Um, my overall wellness isn't the greatest, um, because firefighting is very taxing on relationships, your body, your mental health. Um, and just years and years of not eating great on fires and stuff, it takes a toll after a while, Um, which is actually something that my boyfriend mostly, and I'm trying to help as much as I can, we're trying to teach people and instill that in current firefighters, um, like to focus on their mental health, overall well-being, comprehensive well-being. We're teaching them um, mobility and flexibility and how to work out and how to mitigate injuries when you're, you know, in the middle of fire season and stuff like that. We're trying to prevent and elongate the amount of time that people are lasting. Cause you know, we can't retire for 20, 25 years, but by year 15, your body's destroyed. Um, so by the time you do retire your body, you're going to feel like a 60 year old when you're 30. Um, so that's kind of one of the reasons we got out. Not only that, but we want more time to actually enjoy life. So those are kind of the main reasons why we got out of it. Um, and now I'm focusing on getting back into the outdoor industry as um, a person of media. So I'm actually a writer. I'm going to be writing articles. Um, one of them is going to be on the story of my uncle and then just kind of writing about stuff like this conservation. Um, and then even yesterday I had a meeting with the city council that they were actually doing a meet and greet that I attended Um, on how to like change this area and one of the ideas was what what can we do to give kids something to do in this area other than you know go towards trouble and drugs and stuff Mm -hmm. because around here like nowadays you know it's not safe for kids to ride their bike wherever they want anymore Um, they're taking a lot of those extracurricular stuff out of our education system so like what is there to do for kids nowadays um, their parents are working two jobs and don't have time to take them up into the mountains to go hiking stuff. So I'm kind of going to be working with the city in our community and the Rocky Mountain Women Outdoors. Um, they've got they want me to start a chapter up here, so I think I'm going to be doing that. I teach archery now, so I'm going to try to instill like an or like a women's or just an archery league for any kids. Um, in this area to kind of, cause there's, you know, there's so much scholarship opportunity with that, even with like Trap league and stuff, um, teaching them survival skills and hiking and stuff like that. So I'm going to start doing that. Um, some other things I started my own business recently within media. So I'm doing videography, video editing, short filmmaking, photography. Um, I know the industry is super saturated with photographers already, but my style is going to be different.
1: That's I'm a good thing.
0: Photos with a ton of editing and trap. Mine's going to be very candid, very natural, but still high quality. And then the films I'm going to be making is kind of going to be similar to like what Joe Rogan is doing um, with his podcast. He mm-hmm. talks about all sorts of different topics between health, mental stuff, spiritual stuff, kind of like these off the wall ideas. Um, I'm going to be starting a podcast in about stuff like that, but in my own interest levels. Um, kind of talking about those topics that a lot of people don't want to talk about because they're so controversial, kind of like what you're doing, <laughs> which
1: I love, by the way. I appreciate so, that, um, yeah. No, you got to you gotta ask the tough questions yeah. or t- talk about things people are not comfortable talking, yeah.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, kind of like a lot of stuff in the works, I went back to bartending as well for the time being. Um, but yeah, I'm doing a lot of media right now. I even dive dove into real estate photography, things like that. But I'm really trying to bring my focus towards the outdoor industry specifically, with like conservation, helping kids get into like trap leagues as a, an Olympic sport, um, archery, same thing. Teach teach these kids how to hunt, survival skills, hiking. Um, I'm gonna be writing a book as well. It's kind of gonna be like a biography slash not self-help, but it's going to be giving a lot of insight to like mental health and stuff like that. Um, what else? I've got so much going on. (laughs) It's
1: It's a good thing to be busy.
0: busy. Yeah. It's going to be really busy, but hopefully I'm going to be working for myself one day.
1: Awesome. It's a good goal to have because the economy is shifting to more people working in the gig economy or supporting themselves through, self-employment so you can reach that point at some point Mm -hmm. it's very doable it's not as difficult as one would believe
0: but it's gonna it's gonna i think it's gonna go well now that i have my summers again and i'm not like on fires i have so much more time to like not only enjoy life but like pursue and do the things that i want to do which is kind of a lot of what the book is about and i started a blog called life beyond limits um and that's pretty much what the blog entails it's it's a lot of traveling a lot of advice and a lot of encouraging people to break away from the societal expectations and focus on actually enjoying the one life that you have before it's over like stop working your life away stop buying things you think you have to have to impress people actually get out and travel and gain different perspective and um like experience life you know
1: yeah, they say that it's better to value experiences over material items. So I fully agree with that sentiment.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, I think one thing I forgot to mention earlier is like forest management, kind of jumping back into that. Um, did you still want to go over that? About the NUPA law?
1: Yeah, if you wanted to segue, uh, discuss that a little bit more, do you think it'll improve how people will... Uh, perform in the forestry service combating fires
0: yeah i think that forestry management like i think a lot of because people are so unaware of what we do first of all as a job like how we fight fire um and certain like we completely forget about the environmental factors when it comes to the fire aspect of things because people are so focused on fire suppression they forget about the environmental impact that we're having um and you brought up the NEPA law, um, which I'm not 100%. Um, I'm not, like, an expert on that. And a lot it's of a difficult are law. Not,
1: <laughs> know, it's it, confusing.
0: Or just my opinion based on my experience and my position in the Forest Service. And I'm sure there's a lot more people with, you know, because you don't know every side to the story, obviously. Um, but from what I do know about the law is it's very broad. Like, it's not specific enough, and it's not it's not very detailed. So I think they want to go in and make things more detailed. Um, as far as how we manage our forests, this is just my opinion. Again, let it burn. Like, I think we need to stop focusing on fire suppression, and we need to let a lot of these fires burn. And the reason I say that is because a lot of the fires are getting as bad as they've gotten because we've suppressed them for so long. So, for example, anytime we get a thunderstorm, that's the ozone's way of naturally healing itself. Well, fire is the same thing. The forest's way of healing itself from invasive species, all the dead timber and dead trees and stuff, is fire. And if you look at like the sequoia trees, the only way those trees can grow and regerminate is if everything below it has been burned and that little seedling from the pine cone can fall into the ground and be fertilized by all the minerals from the ash and they can actually have the opportunity to get into the soil. But if you've got layers and layers of wood and sticks and branches and leaves, there's no way that seed is ever going to make it to the soil. So we're actually preventing a lot of regrowth with trees and stuff like that by preventing fire. No, I'm not saying let the fires burn and just let everything and all the people and their homes burn too. That's not what I'm saying. Like contained
1: um, fires, uh, prescribed burns, yeah, right? right?
0: Yeah. We need to do more, but that's the thing too, is like, because of like, if you look at California because of the fuel types and the, how much fuel is out there, like dead trees and you know, your heavier fuel types there's areas that we can't even do a prescribed burn on because it would be too dangerous. Hmm. Um, So I think we just need to refocus instead of having all these fire crews. First of all, we're short-staffed by a lot. So it's kind of interesting to hear that, you know, all these people want jobs and stuff, and I don't necessarily recommend this job, but for a single person, you know, who's still going through college or whatever, this is a great summer job. It's a great way to make money and meet people and experience things and toughen up your body and your men- mental state. Um, but we need, mo- we need more people in forest management we need more people to sign up and do this job. Um, even if that means utilizing the people in prisons, like the CBC crews that we have, um, get them out there and let's improve the trails. Let's get rid of some of this dead and down. And a lot of what's been brought up too is like you know every time there's a fire we're bringing all these vehicles and all these engines and helicopters and people into these environments to put the fires out but who's really being more destructive the fire or us between our gas our garbage like we have water bottles and food and like some people still litter even we do which i i mean i personally don't but you know, some people do.
1: Some people are, yeah, irresponsible,
0: sadly. We're, yeah, we're invading these ecosystems that are already sensitive, so are we really helping, or are we just making it worse, if you think about it? Um, so, I think if we just focus more on managing the forests, like, um, cl- making a bigger break in areas that we want to protect, and with all these people wanting to live in the woods in the mountains like yeah that's great but i don't think people realize like hey you're you're setting yourself up to be in an area where there's fire and that's you're like that's what you signed up for by moving there so why does it become our responsibility when there's a fire in your area and you don't want your house to burn down so i think people need to reconsider where they're moving their house make sure they have enough clearance away from those heavier fuels that are going to increase the chances of their house burning down i think people need to be more cognizant about clearing out the fuels around their house like any really long native grasses any um trees or like a ton of stuff around their house like you can't just put a house in the the woods and expect it not to burn you have to protect it from the house um but we just have to be careful with how we manage it too. Because a lot of the the down trees are going to be habitats for animals. So we need to do a lot more prescribed burning um and just how we we need to we need to do more forest management at the end of the day.
1: A lot of people have been saying that <laughs> yeah, uh recently.
0: They're like, oh, we can't, like, because our mindset is, especially in California, they're just so aggressive. Anytime, a, like, lightning hits a tree, we're out there putting line around it. Like, why? Just let it go. Manage, like, keep an eye on it and babysit it. But, like, in some areas, like, where I was in California, in northern California, there's nobody that lives on that forest. All it is is lava rock. Um, lava rock and grass so that fire's not going anywhere so just let it go Um, not every area is like that but I think we need a couple years where we just let certain things burn and yeah it's going to be destructive but it's a natural process fire is actually really 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 good for the environment if you look at the east coast of North Carolina and stuff like that you can look into what fire has done for that area you've got beautiful areas with like longleaf pine and wiregrass and it's gorgeous and all of that is because of prescribed burning. Mm-hmm. And you've got a lot of these lawmakers who don't know um, a single lick of anything when it comes to forest management and they're the ones making all the decisions. So it just kind of with my mind how people are like anti-logging but that's what the Forest Service was originally was a bunch of loggers um, and logging is good. To, to a certain degree so if we bring logging back as well um but yeah I think as far as forest management goes there's a lot that we could do better on we need more people we need to do more with management and where people are building their houses um we need to let more of the fires burn we need to do more prescribed burning there's a lot that's going to go into it so I think you know when you hear of you know budget cuts happening within fire suppression, like that's not necessarily a bad thing because to be on quite honest with you, from what I've seen, we waste a lot of money.
1: Is that so? huh?
0: Like if you think every like those big airplanes that you see dumping water or dumping um that red retardant, mm-hmm. that's costing eighty thousand dollars per drop.
1: Wow. It's a lot.
0: Um, one of the smaller planes that drops, you know, I don't even know how many gallons it is off the top of my head, but the little planes that cost fifteen thousand. Every time the helicopter goes up in the air to drop people off or bring people resources in, that's costing money. Like you said, the campfire was what sixteen point one billion dollars.
1: I think sixteen and a half billion. Yeah, close.
0: Yeah. So we're putting, yeah, we're dumping all of this money into resources. For fire suppression, but we're really not doing anything. So why don't we re um, reposition where that money is going and spend a lot of that money on fire prevention and fire ma- and forest management to prevent those fires from happening? So in the end, we're going to save a lot of money. We're going to improve the forests, and it's just going to be better for the environment overall. Because to be quite honest with you, we are killing so many sensitive ecosystems just by being in there. Which is why you've got wilderness areas that there's no motor vehicles or saws or anything allowed in those areas for a reason.
1: Yeah, that makes sense. And that you have a firsthand perspective into that and you should actually write about that. Anytime this type of issue arises, like your perspective would be very important and I think notable and and help you, I think, uh, even get more opportunities too.
0: Yeah, and I think a lot of people in the Forest Service, like firefighters specifically, they have a lot of amazing, really good potential type ideas, and they just need to use their voice, even if they think they don't have one. A lot of the people who are experienced as firefighters, I mean, we're the ones working in it. We're the ones seeing it every day. We're seeing the destruction. We're seeing what we're doing to the environment because we're, we're there every day. These people in Congress, no offense, they don't know. They have no, no idea. They're, they just have their opinions like, oh, we don't want this to burn and blah, blah, blah. So they're making all these decisions and it's not the right decision because you don't have the right people making them decisions. So, I think more people, I think our voice should count for something. I think that they need to ask our opinion more, and we need to do our job as well and speak up because at the end of the day, this is going to be our future. You know, the, the forests that we have and how they're managed, that's going to be our future. If we don't do it right, we're looking at 10 years down the road, we're going to have nothing. So, I think that needs to be a huge focus
1: too. Yeah, the difference between preservation and conservation, yeah, <laughs> in a nutshell.
0: Conservation mostly.
1: Yeah, yeah, and conservation means you can manage, or not so much extract, but like take care of things. Like you can do stuff, but from a uh, not so much cost prohibitive thing or something that subtracts from enjoyment for people to go to the forests or wildlife. It's just a strict management thing, like what we discuss and in, in what we all try to promote in hunting. Um, similarly with natural resources, you have to kind of do that too. And, um, a lot of people, like you said, in Congress and other places don't want to, because they think any sort of entanglement means destruction and that's catastrophic and, and very polemic of them to, <laughs> and alarming for them to say, because again, like you said, they have no firsthand account. They live in nice cozy houses and they don't have to do anything. They have people doing stuff for them.
0: Yeah, and they're not educated enough about it too. Right. And that could be our fault too. Like we need to do a better job on educating the public about why fire is a good thing. And I'm actually doing a video project right now for the Nature Conservancy on why fire is a good thing. And I'm very cool. Pictures of what an area looked like before we burned it versus years down the road what it looks like now because we've c- continued a healthy burn process on it. And I think obviously in the west it's a lot harder because you're dealing with topography you're dealing with different fuel types but it is possible and with a lot of these fires like i think people are so brainwashed to think that fire is so bad it's such a bad thing but it's actually not it's a natural process and we need to let the earth do its natural process sometimes and i think with better fire management we're gonna like yeah you're gonna see areas that are gonna get completely destroyed but that's that's life that's its process um as far as people's homes and stuff like yeah if we can provide better forest management we're going to prevent a lot of you know tragedies from happening and not only that but we're putting so many firefighters lives at risk by intentionally putting them in situations they should never be in to begin with so it's like how many more firefighters are going to have to die before we finally change our tactics
1: yeah, they don't value that life. Those the lives of the people who are put in harm's way. I think, unfortunately, no,
0: because we're seen as a number.
1: Yeah, it's as it's sad.
0: Service, unfortunately. Yeah, you're easily replaced. So a lot of mindset just needs to be flip flopped. I think. <laughs> yeah.
1: Something. A lot of these
0: fires are caused from lightning mostly. Yeah. But a lot of them are also man made. Yep. From campfires being left unintended. So people need to do a better job at being cognizant about that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, people just being crazy and setting the fires on purpose. Yeah. But a lot of them are lightning. Yeah. So that's unavoidable.
1: Yeah. I don't miss living in a fire prone area like California. It's, it's, you know, I had my share of it. I've seen fires, not, I'm not a pyromaniac. I did see them from a distance. My high school was burned. The area across from it, uh, caught on fire once before I went to that high school and you'd see it all the time. You'd see smoke and, and all that. And it was not a pretty sight and the air quality was really bad. And I think it was largely due to like we have been discussing here on the podcast that they just didn't manage it. And it just gets, it piles up and it gets more severe and the air quality gets worse with each time when it's not properly managed. And I think you're right that the East coast does prescribe burns and forest management a little bit better. I think you don't see so much of like forest fires as much um, affecting things. And maybe yeah, that West could learn a little bit better (laughs) from the East in that regard.
0: (laughs) Yeah. And it makes it, I mean, you're looking at these fires nowadays, they're hotter, they're bigger, they're more destructive. And I mean, certain, once these fires get to a certain temperature, it's destroying the soil. Like, there's not going to, it's going to get so hot that it's going to destroy the soil to where nothing else can grow there. Like, if you look at Storm King Mountain in, by Glenwood Spring in um, Colorado, like, they went back in and planted some seed in there, but there's still no trees there. And who knows how long it'll take for trees to ever grow back there if they do. There's a lot of very dead areas where that fire was because it was so hot and that's happening in a lot of places because the fort fire management or the management isn't great. So we're eventually going to get to a point where these, I mean, the fires aren't going to get any better. they are going to continue to get worse and worse and worse. And we're going to eventually be in a situation where nothing's growing back. Um, and not only that, but it's just becoming more physically demanding for us when we're out there fighting the fires because, you know, they're more dangerous, they're hotter. We're already working 16-hour days, so it's already difficult for us to like continue to stay energized and, you know, we're not getting a lot of sleep, we're not getting great nutrition. Um that's probably one of the biggest obstacles of the job is your mental ability to keep going, to keep working. You know, sometimes we'll pull a 24-48-hour shift um but that's where your crewmates come in to kind of lift you up and keep pushing you and it's amazing because you actually discover your own physical limitations like your your body's going to get or your brain's going to give a lot give up a lot faster than your body your brain's going to lie to you and tell you that you can't keep going but really you can
1: but yeah i think
0: we can do a lot better
1: that's good. That's that's very good insight. And I think hearing from someone like you talk about that, because so many politicians will be like, and, and there are good ones who support this reform of NEPA and forest management, but I think a lot of them just don't speak in a plain spoken way. So hearing it from someone like you, who's actually had to go directly to combat those fires will help. I think people understand that more. And it, I learned a lot from just hearing you talk about it. And I think people can too, just because you, you got more of you need to come speak out about it and in split plain spoken terms and, and just kind of get people interested in it and to care about it. It doesn't mean they have to go out of their way or change their lifestyle, but I think more people just have to be aware and firsthand accounts are very helpful like yours. Yeah.
0: I agree. And a friend of mine actually just started a podcast that is specifically related to anything to do with wildland fire. It's called the anchor point podcast. So if anybody wants to listen to that, definitely look into that because there's a ton of really great insights. So if anybody wants to learn more about, Um, forestry and what we do and how you know obstacles that we have to face and stuff like that hearing it from many other types of people because everyone has a different experience like my boyfriend and I have a totally different experience in our entire careers in fire and everyone has a different experience because it's going to be based on where you are who you're working with and stuff like that so I think there's a lot to be learned from that podcast as well
1: very cool I'll link it to the show notes. In there. Yeah, absolutely. I wanted to, one of the final things I wanted to ask you is we were both recently in Wichita, Kansas for the Poma Business Conference. I wanted to uh, pick your brain as to what you think the value of Poma is because since I've joined uh, and I don't have to speak so much about it, everyone knows what uh, that I got the award and I don't, I don't want to talk so much about it anymore, but I've seen so much value in being a member and you got a scholarship to it and It's just such a cool environment. I want to hear your thoughts about it and how do you think it's going to help you with your career?
0: I think Poma was probably one of the most life-changing experiences I've had as of late. Um, Not only seeing people that I already know, like, you know, getting back in touch with you, seeing you win the award, um, and just even having someone like Kevin, who's the president of Poma currently, Mm -hmm. he was just super helpful um, I met him at SHOT Show this year, um, because of my friend Abby Casey, um, she, I met,
1: and she's a past I, Pinnacle Award recipient too. She won last year. Yep.
0: Yeah, yeah, she did. She actually introduced me to Kevin this year at SHOT Show and oh, that's I was awesome. to home a meeting, um, loved it, met a lot of awesome people. Um, because I think, you know, because the industry is so saturated with media as it is, um, POMA has a really good way of weeding out the ones that aren't in it for the right reasons um, and stuff like that. Like, all the members of POMA so far are very genuine, kind, helpful people, and they're really there to help each other. And being in Wichita, like, that was very proven to me. I never had any bad – I didn't have a single bad experience there. The people there were amazing. The people that I met there. One specifically is, uh, did, did we get a chance to meet Jen? Jen. From Crosby,
1: oh, I've known Jen for like several years from politics. It's really, yeah, I've known Jen, Jen Jakes she's for a while. Jen
0: is my spirit.
1: <laughs> she's very funny. And she's also yes. from Wisconsin, too. <laughs>
0: She's amazing. Um, It's actually funny because after Poma, me and my boyfriend were actually able to tour the Brownells. um, Yeah,
1: I saw that.
0: So we've made a lot of connections from Poma, and I'm really excited to be a member. Um, I, you know, was able to attend because of a scholarship I got from Toyota, so I'm really excited to work with them further, Um, and I think that because of Poma, I'm actually going to have... Their thought and having a career in media in the outdoor industry. Um, I'm going to be able to continue to network with people and meet people. And I, just, I had a blast there.
1: It was a lot I, of fun. Yeah, I loved yeah,
0: it. I usually do well with crowds or a lot of people, but I you know, was able to connect with a lot of people and really feel comfortable around them. I didn't get overwhelmed really because I'm kind of like an introvert, extrovert type person um i had a blast and i'm really excited i've seen a lot of great benefits so far um i've actually recommended a lot of people to poma so far too Mm, so this is something that they want to make a new career like you know outdoor media being able to travel and tell amazing stories and pursue a writing career um, i'm kind of doing as much of it as i can i'm doing writing photography and video um so i'm really excited to see what adventures i'm going to be able to go on and the people i'm going to meet and the experiences i'm going to be able to have
1: yeah they do take good care of us and i think they want to to do more i've talked with some of the board members who are like how can we get you involved and you definitely should try to join a committee i'm i was roped into to to help with membership and i really want to do that because i tell everyone who i think is qualified to join poma and has the ability to grow i'm like you guys should join like Yes, the price is a little steep. It's not the cheapest price point, but you get so much on a return on investment with it, and it, they they really do guide you. Got
0: to invest a little
1: of the gain. A lot. Absolutely, absolutely. No, yeah. It and I think they're going to continue to grow and and change how they a lot. Let's say job opportunities and things of that sort. So they, I think, out of any outdoor writers associate or outdoor media association, uh, I should say organization out there. I think they're probably the most forward thinking. Uh, they really want to bring in younger people like us who are in our late twenties, early thirties to come in and kind of start to hand over the reins or prepare us to take on responsibilities and tasks. I think they're, they're very keen on that because so many people, other people in the outdoor industry, in any industry, they just want to kind of hold on to those opportunities and not let young people like us in, which is problematic. <laughs> But I think they're, they're positioning people to eventually take over certain roles or to have more opportunities and to not feel intimidated in such a vast industry like this.
0: Yeah. And you've got, and they believe in us too. Kevin is so supportive. He actually like believes in what we're doing. And he, Kevin has introduced me to a lot of people that I never like, had the guts to go talk to myself. Um, and POMA too, like basically what it is, is you get, and depending on what category of POMA you're in, like the category I'm in, for example, um, if there's a job coming up, like if somebody needs a photographer, or videographer, if somebody needs to me to write an article, like they'll put me on a list. And if somebody needs that help, they'll call me because I'll be on that list. So it's not like me seeking jobs all the time just to get, you know, sometimes turned down or it gets, you know, like it goes to someone else or I'm just too late or whatever the case may be. But they actually help you find work, too. Mm -hmm. So that's really amazing. That's so helpful. It really is. By A lot of companies, like a lot of businesses know what Poma is. They know what we can do. And if you are able to have that on your resume or on your business card, then you're going to get taken a lot more seriously. Cause I know, I don't know how it is for you. Um, but being a female on the hunting industry can be difficult at times because you automatically get categorized into the influencer category. Like, oh, you're just seeking free stuff or you just want to be an influencer or whatever. I think, you know, we have to try to, We have to work a lot harder to like prove that we're worth something, that we have a voice, that we are skilled in whatever area that we're in.
1: Yeah, like you were saying, how we have to prove any detractors wrong. Although I've mostly, maybe it's your experience too, but I've mostly been met by warm welcomes reception because I try to be serious in what I do, and I think you and I are very similar in that way, where we can compete in a male-dominated environment and win over their respect, not to appease them, but like. People can we can work with people and prove them wrong and say like, hey, we're not these gun bunnies or these people just trying to rake up social media followers and really kind of be attuned to uh, being sincere and trying to get in more people like this year alone. I do more so fishing and I'm new to hunting. That's kind of how I am oriented. But my goal has been to introduce more people to fishing which I've been really good on. I'm about to take a third person fishing or when this podcast, out, I will have already taken a third friend fishing. Who's never gone fishing before like city dwellers. So like I've made a goal, not only to like post about things and activities, but to help take people out and help them discover activities too. kind of like what you were talking about, like adult onset, like anglers and even adult onset hunters too. Um, I'm new to hunting, but like, uh, yeah, there's so many people who want to learn and yeah, a group like Poma really does that yeah, that's true. They're like, I never did it. Like, I don't know if I'll like it. And I had a friend who was skeptical and she loved it. She's like, what? And then she, when I posted about some other fish, she's like, what kind of fish is this? She got so curious about it. And it was just so cool to see that kind of like energy light up. So once you get people hooked into these activities, they want to do it, but it, it's, it's I
0: be interested in having another conversation with you down the road about, yeah. about like how, cause I mean, we both have looked around and we see in society where The outdoor culture, the outdoor lifestyle, isn't common anymore. It's not being taught because so many people would rather be going on a wild, crazier adventure through their phone or through some sort of technology, and they don't appreciate the environment. They don't appreciate the outdoors, and those are going to be those are going to be the same people that are going to be our future, who are going to be making the decisions as far as what happens with our environment and how it's maintained and taken care of. So I feel like we need to do more as a society, to And it's not helping that all this anti-gun, anti-hunting stuff is going Amen. Um, and I'm actually doing a pretty interesting blog right now about how we as sports, we as hunters are perceived by by non-hunters. Like how, based on what we post on social media and how we hold ourselves in public or on social outlets, how are we giving hunting a good name and how we're giving it a bad name and I think we're not doing as good of a job as we could be doing as far as perceiving hunting in a positive way um and it's actually like my boyfriend isn't like he has hunted when he was younger but not so much in his adulthood and he's actually brought up a lot of really good points like why do you do this why do you hang up you know live dead things on your wall like different questions that I never would have thought about before Mm -hmm. and now I've actually taken the time to like really dive into that type of thinking and it's like holy crap how am I how am I showing the hunting culture based on what I'm putting out there on the internet yeah it's good yeah I've avoided Instagram for a while (laughs) (laughs) it's been on there a while but yeah, I'm trying to refocus how I'm perceiving because I want this culture to survive because, you know, it's got a lot of good, but I think we as hunters have gotten off track lately.
1: Yeah, I think a lot of people see it as an opportunity to profit if they are able to get this many likes and this many followers and... Not really uh, be conscious of showing all the dynamics, it. It's not just a kill shot. Um, it's enjoying the n- scenery, the nature, sunrises, sunsets, uh, different types of shot, antler shots or fishtail shots or uh, different types of angles of photographs or the, the harvest after it's completed, the final meal. I think there's so many dynamics we can show that kind of lure people sho- uh, slowly into either hunting or fishing and even shooting sports, too. I try to not um, just show like me shooting guns. I tried to explain to people, like if I'm posting about, let's say an air 15, which is controversial, although it shouldn't be, but a lot of people mm-hmm. put, be, they, they make it so, cause they don't know. And, and, and we can help people understand, I think a little bit better, but it's just, they don't know. And they think, cause it, it's, the aesthetics are very intimidating looking and intimidating and kind of just scary and off putting. Uh, they think that's going to, it's just as comparable to like a fully automatic, weapon or a weapon of war and people don't understand that actually women of all people love shooting AR-15s especially having it for home defense purposes that's what I remember reading a few years ago um so I, I think it's just a matter of edu- explaining to people like you see education. me you, yeah it's like, explaining
0: education absolutely the of the like I'm currently right now one of the things I forgot to bring up was I'm actually working with the Colorado Parks and Wildlife right now nice um And I'm going to try to, and I don't know who to get a hold of yet. I've talked to Jules McQueen about it a little bit. I need to get a hold of Jana because they have a voice. Um, I want to create some sort of national hunter safety course that's more in detail. Um, It's going to go over archery safety, gun safety. It's going to teach the kids all the animal types throughout the entire nation because I think it's your responsibility as a a hunter to know that, Mm -hmm. especially if you're going to travel and hunt. Um, and I think we just, and I eventually want to get it into schools if it's, that's going to be probably one of the most difficult things to do. But I think there's a lot of kids out there that want to be involved in the outdoors, but they just are told that it's wrong. They're told that it's bad. Um, so we need to bring that culture back and we need to bring it back with the right intention because at the end, the way that we're going about it now is these animals are being used in, they're being commercialized and, at the end of the day, they're the ones that are suffering um, or destroying their habitats, as it is, and just certain, like, the fact that it's becoming like, you can basically buy an animal, like, I don't necessarily agree with that, um, and just how we're going about things. I think in 10 years, if we continue going at the rate we're going, we're going to destroy it until we do something about it, like educate people and try to get the youth and even adults more involved into the outdoors and conservation and stuff like that. So Yeah. I think people are on the right track.
1: Yeah, slowly but surely. I think people are getting better with things. We'll get there. Yeah. And all of us have to work together, I think. So much of it is like being so self interested and I'm all about collaborating when, when appropriate, of course. So I think all of us just have to do a better job of communicating and, and collaborating more effectively regardless of where we live I try to work with anyone outside of my region and on the west coast northeast all these regions I think we just have to to do that yeah I agree how can people yeah how can people connect with you beyond the podcast I would love to, to fi- uh, finish with that since we've talked a lot about really cool things in your your time in firefighting and the forestry service. So how can people connect with you and learn more about what you're up to your and your future endeavors?
0: Um, well, I'm going to be starting back up on social media soon. Um, my handles are Lexi Quinn, which is two X's um, and a Y, Quinn underscore. And then I have my blog page, um, which is all the, like the mental health, the spiritual health, the hiking, the traveling, the fitness, the intuitive eating, all the, all of that stuff, like the well-being stuff, that's going to be all under my blog, which is lifebeyondlimitsofficial.com. com. I have an Instagram page as well called lifebeyondlimitsofficial. Um, if anybody's interested in my media pages, it's going to be under Roaming Huga Media, H Y G G E. Um, Huga means it's like a, a lifestyle that the danish use and even people in norway use it's basically a lifestyle of comfort and family and peace and love and all that other great stuff um so that's where i got the name and running you know a nomad so i have that page as well i'm going to be starting up a website soon with all of my uh, portfolio my videos my photos um and pretty much I, like, encourage anybody to, like, hit me up on Facebook or Instagram if they ever have a question about firefighting or getting into hunting or, like, anything to do with mental health or bettering their health in, like, a fitness level or any, any of that stuff. Like, I want people to come to me and, like, ask me questions and seek advice because I'm making my platform more for everyone else. Like, I want to help people in as many ways as I can. So those are my handles.
1: That is very, and the name of your website again, or your blog.
0: Lifebeandlimitsofficial.com.
1: Awesome. And where will people be able to find your writing? Have you secured any publications or is it going to be self-published through your blog?
0: Um, a lot of my current writing is going to be on my blog um, as well. Also on my blog, there's a link, there's like a page specifically of every podcast I've ever done. This one will be on there as well. There's going to be another page of anything I write where it's where it's been published so they can read it there. Um, and it also has my blog on there too. So that's going to be a page that's going to be upcoming because I haven't really written a ton yet. But when I do, there's going to be a page that they can click on through my website that they can see anything I've ever written and where it's been published.
1: Very cool. I thought this was a fun chat... And I hope people connect with you and, and learn more about your background and your work, and connect with you because I've I've enjoyed getting to befriend you, and I hope we get to see each other again sometime soon, hopefully before the POMA conference in Nashville next year. But if you're ever out in DC, hit me up and uh, we can do some fun stuff together, fishing. There's a lot of good fishing here. That
0: sounds good, that sounds good
1: to me. Yeah, and if I come out oh your way, God. yeah, if I ever come out your way, I'll let you know too. I don't, I haven't been to Colorado ever, so I want to. Well, I
0: have a guest room, so you're welcome to come visit. Oh, that's very
1: sweet likewise that's true all right Lexi this has been fun and I hope uh people will connect with you thank you so much for coming on the podcast today
0: thank
1: you yeah take care bye bye who else was inspired by Lexi's story that was really good to hear and I'm so glad I had her on the podcast to talk about her work as a firefighter and also her work in the U.S. Forest Service and what that entailed I am very grateful to Real Camel Girl for sponsoring the podcast each week. You can learn more about them at realcamogirl.com and see how you can get involved there. If you enjoyed this episode, I encourage you to subscribe on iTunes and other supporting platforms. The more downloads we have, the better reach we can get and the higher spot we can attain on the Apple podcast list. So more downloads equals a greater spot on that list. If you feel so inclined, you can subscribe to us so you never miss an episode. And you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter to always get the latest on what's happening here in the nation's capital and the surrounding areas and with all the guests we have brought on and that we plan to bring on on the podcast. If you like what you heard, you can also leave a review. Send me back any feedback. And I will take that into consideration. Thank you for listening and make sure to connect with Lexi if you haven't already.